what are those open questions that you might be able to, if you just add a little tweak in your system, recognize that this is how people are actually using your systems rather than having the audacity to think that you have decided how people are going to use these systems. Because what we've found again and again and a million times again is that people do not use the systems in the way that they were originally intended to be used. (laughs) You're listening to Unintended Consequences, the podcast that explores how systems become large and complex and how they change the lives of everyone they touch. I'm Kim Harrison, team sociologist. I'm Yoz Graham, software wrangler. And I'm Heidi Waterhouse, transformation advocate. We work at LaunchDarkly, the feature management platform that gives you more control over your code and how it gets delivered. Unintended Consequences is brought to you by HeavyBit, an accelerator and venture fund dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. On today's episode, we're talking to the social psychologist, Dr. Alex Krutoski. Her primary focus is on technology and how it affects our lives, about which she's written, broadcasted, and podcasted for the BBC and The Guardian. Hello, Alex. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Yaz. It's so good to have you here. Dr. Alex Krotowski is a writer, podcaster, academic, TV presenter. What am I missing? <laughs> Roller coaster obsessive. Uh, <laughs> I like to bake. <laughs> I'm obsessed with uh, the sensorium of interfaces. Which is hugely applicable to this stuff. And of your podcasts, I love how your podcast, this is something that Kim was saying. This is about uh, the human side of things. Oh, always. Well, I'm a psychologist, right? So I'm a social psychologist. So that's the thing, right? That's the, that's the thing that cuts across all of it. It used to be technology was the thing that cut across all of it, which I actually found frustrating because I was like, no, I'm not just technology. I like learning about people through the lens of where technology doesn't quite work or where technology um, makes us uncomfortable. But I'm also interested in looking at who we are through the lens of why we like to go to theme parks and escapism or why we have particular marriage, birth, and death rituals. And that's exactly the kind of thing we want to look at here, is, except that uh, usually you're focused on um, technology that affects us all. And Actually, no, so are we. Technology um, affects everybody regardless. Like even if it's just a, a router system or if it's just a you know a bunch of a bunch of pipes, it still affects us because we use it to communicate with one another. You know, communication technology is really the, the kind of the crux of what it is. And we see that scaling up massively over the past, you know, 30, 40 years with the internet um, and the effects of it. And this is part of our thesis and what we wanted to ask you about today. As we are starting this podcast, we wanted to come to you and say, okay, this kind of thing, is this the right sort of thing to talk about? What should we be talking about? Who should we be talking about it with? Because what happened is that Kim and I started talking about scale, fascinated by scale. And it's the kind of thing that in our industry, we're in the Bay Area and surrounded by startups of every kind. Everything is a tech startup here. Every corner shop is actually a tech startup in waiting in the same way that every American is a temporarily embarrassed millionaire. All the conversations at happy hours and cafes, I mean, we're just infused with it. It's how we think about things. 
all of the ads everywhere. Like anytime I go over to the Bay Area, it's the first thing I notice is the ads are very different. I lived in LA for a while and all the ads there were about film and entertainment. I moved to New York and you see more ads about fashion, but you also see mm-hmm. ads about politics. You see ads about different types of things. And in the Bay Area, it's only about technology. It's everywhere and it affects everything. And so all the conversations are around, you know, unicorns and hockey sticks and other terrible analogies. But everybody is dreaming of success. And the things that they only recently are starting to think about is the problems of success, especially social media is an obvious um, poster child or poster villain here, where the scale gets such that it starts to infect international politics. And when we have, you know, obviously Facebook and Twitter affecting elections and being giant players in international statecraft and diplomacy, then something may have gone horribly wrong. Well, I think that, I mean, it depends. Like, I think that there are many ways to look at it, but I, I want to pull out two ways. The first is the expectation that a single person or a small group of people has the audacity to think that they can create something that will fulfill the needs, the social and psychological needs of all of the people of the world, mm-hmm. when in fact they are operating from within an experience frame of themselves and the people who are like them. And that's, you know, one villainous element. Mm-hmm. And then the other side of this villainous element is the fact that people look to these technologies, audiences, consumers look to these technologies as magic and just accept what it is that's given to them without being critical thinkers and believing that the technology is doing something to them. So I think the reality is, as always, somewhere in the middle, and neither of these poles of this spectrum are are entirely accurate. But I think that there is fault at both ends, shall we say. Sometimes when, when groups are creating these technologies, do you think they even know where it's going to end up? Were they of course even aware? Not. Yeah. And so it's no easy to look way. back in yeah. hindsight and say, oh, they're evil. Yeah. They created this thing versus they created a thing and then it took off. It ran away from well, them. Well, they exactly. They created a thing that had a shortcut in there that they needed to put in there because that was how they were operationalizing something, right? They're like, oh, I just need a solution to that. Uh, somebody's done this before. I'll pull in this library of code and I'll plop that in because it does the thing that I need it to do because I've got a VC meeting on Thursday at three mm. o'clock and it's currently Thursday at two o'clock and it works. It's fine. They don't think about what assumptions are being made in that system that then becomes hard-baked into the system because the VC has just funded that thing that they did on the fly going, oh, my God, we need to shove this in. And so that's another element of scale is like the if you were so academically minded <laughs> that you reflected on every single decision that you made at every single point within your group, within your individual part in the cog of that system, you would never get anything out the door. And that's not the Bay Area's modus operandi. It's about getting it out, getting it fast, getting it to people, getting them to feed it back, and then it's gone. And I think that may became the thing that that is problematic with scale is because people just didn't take the time because they didn't have it because that's not what the culture is. Yeah. But maybe this is a moment to pause and think about it, because to Yaza's point, we're now at a point in time where things are far bigger than they have been. And 
we're moving way faster than we ever did before. So you're starting to see new new tools, new platforms, new products in ways that I don't think we dreamt about even five years ago. And so how are people thinking about if they build something now, what's the implication of that even six months from like TikTok? There's no way because there are so many different factors. Several years ago, I invented something called the serendipity engine. I was looking for something to do immediately after my PhD because there was a gap in my life (laughs) that I could have filled with lying on a beach and drinking Mai Tais. But instead, I decided to embark on an independent, preposterous, philosophical, artistic expression experiment. Um, It was great. (laughs) It was so good. And it was brilliant. It basically was inspired by the fact that I had just come off the back of filming a BBC Two documentary series, Mm -hmm. which was all about the internet. I had submitted my PhD thesis, which was looking at how information spreads around social networks online, specifically looking at the virtual world of Second Life, because at the time that was the hotness. And when I started, there were 3,000 people. And by the end of it, when I was attempting to do social network analysis of it, there were 15 million accounts. And that was a very painful moment in my life. But it was super interesting. And as I wrote this up, I was making, you know, a lot of assumptions about what it was that theorists and people had said. And the benefit of going off and doing an interview series (laughs) about the internet and its implications was that I was able to go out and speak with all of the people that I'd referenced (laughs) in my PhD and ask them, is this what you meant? And, you know, really dig into it and then come back and sit my viva and have my, my examiners ask me why I thought that the statement that I made there was correct. And I was able to say because I asked them. But in addition to getting confirmation from all of these people that my ideas that I had researched were at least in line with what they were talking about, the thing that they were all talking about that moment in time was serendipity. It was such a big thing around 2009, 2010. It was when Eric Schmidt Mm -hmm. had said, uh, we want Google to be a serendipity engine. And he defined that as providing the answers to questions that you didn't even know you already had. And these are some of the solutions that people are attempting to create, not fully understanding what it is that these things that they are trying to define actually are. So within the last five years, we didn't realize TikTok would take off because we, you know, the the developers, whomever, didn't think about all the reasons why people would go into this space. We hoped that we would understand that if we got it out to influencers, it would attract this and that, you know, if we put it in this way that we had no idea. We literally had no idea how that would happen. And I think that perhaps, you know, giving ourselves a little bit of a break about unintended consequences uh, would at least, you know, take the pressure off developers who feel like they have to define the indefinable go about it in a way that is ham-fisted and perhaps not as thorough or as ethical in terms of like, you know, what are the human beings going to be doing with it on the other side? And focus on the fact that what we're doing right now is something that we need to iterate, even with scale, that you cannot do that. And perhaps that would allow the humbleness of technology to saturate the rest of the world who thinks the technology is infallible and needs to answer these questions before we even ask them. I love that approach. You know, Silicon Valley and startup scene is entirely based on the idea that there is a 99% chance that your idea will fail before more than 10 people have installed it. So you just throw everything in because the chances are that 
you're not going to succeed. And if you do succeed, then the saying that I've heard from so many people is, well, that's a good problem to have. What if we become so big that we are like a nation state unto ourselves? Well, that's a good problem to have. You know, to me, a good problem to have is, you know, what flavour milkshake do I want this morning? What colour Learjet do I want to climb into? Etc. <laughs> but I love what you said there, which is say, no, look, you've still got to have the boldness. You've still got to be able to experiment and innovate without too much fear, but be ready. You know, the moment that you see that something is going wrong, have some tools or some way of dealing with it so that you're not just sticking your fingers in your ears because there are some of the problems that we did see coming in advance. There's the interview with Jack Dorsey a a few months ago that had a whole bunch of people I know up in arms was, you know, Dorsey saying again that nobody could have foreseen the kinds of problems that we are having. And and a bunch of us who've worked in social media for many years were going, no, we we were yelling at you. We told you this was exactly what was going to happen. And of course, we didn't know this was exactly what was going to happen. You probably sound like conspiracy theorists. Oh, probably. Yeah. All the same (laughs) (laughs) critical voices, you know, the kinds of naysayers from the outside who are tend to be blocked out anyway. You've got to let the haters hate, as it were. So like, what kinds of things would you like to see innovators and entrepreneurs take on for this? Well, first of all, I mean, I, I do think being humble is not something that's rewarded necessarily. As you say, it's hockey sticks and unicorns that are rewarded. So that requires a bit of a culture shift. And, you know, you have to be bold if you're going to go out there and ask for money or somebody to have faith in this crazy thing that you've spent all of your time over the last however long creating. But humbleness to recognize that you do not have the answers, especially if the things that you are trying to solve for are human, right? Humans are very complicated. And I'm saying this as a psychologist, and this is, you know, this is a field that I've even find problematic at times because we do also try and put people into boxes. The number of instruments we, you know, that we call like questionnaires and stuff, we call them instruments. The number of instruments that exist to tackle emotion, right? There are like 500 different ways that you can ask somebody if they are happy or sad. And each of them has been more or less successful to the degree that they have been published and are being used and people can buy them. Recognizing that even people who have been studying this their entire lives at times have to stop and turn around and say, nope, we really don't know how to measure this. Recognizing that sticking a one and a zero onto it is actually not going to be a solution. So first of all, I think that that's really important. And that's a sort of, that's a, a, I'm begging. (laughs) I'm genuinely begging because I've spent years talking with people about that. I'm begging people to be a little bit more humble and recognize that, that human beings are not machines and we are not things that can be adjusted and remanufactured. Heck, you know, just read Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah, I mean, go back, you know, mold something out of some mud and realize what, what's going on. This is, I recognize this is, this is hubris. So it's something that it is fundamentally humble. Uh, secondly, what I would not recommend, but I also kind of, you know, would, uh, is get somebody in to ask those difficult questions. Like, why is it that you've decided to do something to put that code in in that way? I live with somebody, my my darling partner is coding at the moment, and he's loving it, and he's creating something that's absolutely wonderful, and I keep interrupting him and saying, well, why did you put that bit of code? Why did you set boundaries around that bit there? And he's internally frustrated with me because he's like, I just want to get the damn thing done. But at the same time, my persistent sort of 
badgering about why did you set the boundaries around that? Why have you decided that that is what is, you know, your definition of a table is or that your definition of a user is this? Why have you done that? Because my persistent badgering is just simply, it doesn't, I'm not asking him to change anything, just to think about, right, oh, okay, that's right. There are ways to think differently about this. And so I wouldn't hire somebody like that because I know that it would drive people crazy. But I also would hire somebody like that because I recognize that that's actually a really important position within these types of development environments, especially if these are the types of questions that you're that you're trying to solve for. Yeah, and it's the kind of thing that engineers take a somewhat bitter joy, as it were, in realizing that the, there's a whole series of blog posts by different people that use the name template falsehoods programmers believe about X. Absolutely. I love them. Yeah. Because it's like, wow, this for me, it's like a, it's a view into minds that I don't know. I'm not a developer. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a programmer. But I talk a lot about their output all the time. And for me, it's, it's really nice to see people reflecting and saying, oh, I have thought in this way. Now I think a little bit more differently. One the first ones was like falsehoods that programmers believe about names. That human yes. names, they don't always have a first name and a last name. They don't, you know, sometimes the family name comes first. Sometimes there's only one name. Sometimes somebody might not have a given name until they are at least five years old, et cetera, et cetera. And this giant unending list, which if you are writing software to deal with names, just makes you want to throw everything up in the air and go off and be a farmer, right? Exactly. It, it interrupts the flow because you're like, I just want it to be simple. But actually, if you want to scale, if you want to make something that is applicable to a global audience, somebody who was at Ethan Zuckerman many years ago, we were talking about this. He was saying, you know, it, the idea, and this is, such a, this is such an old school criticism, but I guess that this is probably the seed that started me off on this path. He said, why on earth should a virtual a, a, a representation of a desk with a blotter and files and pens and those folders on it be relevant to you know a Swahili farmer who has never sat at a desk. Why are you asking these people to represent the world or adopt a representation of the world that's forcing them to learn a brand new language while they're doing it? Don't. Yeah. Do something else. It's fascinating. These are the, exactly the kind of analogies. Unfortunately, we, we don't realize the languages that we have grown up with, that they are actual languages, right? That there may be differences, right? We think about, oh, look, we represent save as a floppy disk icon. That's what we do. And then, you know, obviously now we have people who are coming into the workforce who are going, what is that thing? Totally. Some of the larger organizations have been very forthcoming or forthright in trying to incorporate these types of thinkers. So Genevieve Bell is a great example. Genevieve was at Intel. She was their chief researcher for 100 years. And she's she's not a developer. She's not a programmer. She's a sociologist. And she's an ethnographic sociologist as well. She's like the first person that told me about the fact that, you know, what was interesting about an iPhone was, you know, not that it was a technological marvel. It is a technological marvel, but it's also how people think of it, right? So in China, this is a decade and a half ago now, people valued the device so much that they were creating little paper icons of it so that they could burn them in, at loved ones' funerals, right? Wow. Um, she did research through Intel 
where she asked people to take all of the objects out of their cars, all of the objects out of their cars, and talk about each of these things. And in that way, she discovered the value of, in again, in Chinese cars, they, they always carry around a red envelope just in case they need to pop into somebody's house and give an offering, you know, some kind of you know, money offering that wow. is given in a red envelope. So there's always in Chinese people's cars, there's a red envelope. So how can you build that into a technology? And then she said, you can't do that with an iPhone. You cannot ask people to open up these technological devices in the same way that you would with a car and sort of pull out the folders of, of pictures and pull out the folders of contacts and talk through each of them. We have to think about these things in a different way. Now, that opened up Intel to thinking about lots and lots of different things that, you know, may not have resulted in a single product, but permeated through how they thought about those products, which allowed them to go globally in a way that you know, perhaps one aspect of the technology that was developed didn't speak to us and we didn't even know it was in there. But the fact that it was incorporated into that piece of technology meant that somewhere somebody else adopted that technology. And sure, they had the money, they had the resources, they had the time, they had the ability to have that department as well. But bringing in somebody like Genevieve was, I think, you know, such a smart move on the part of that large organization. Microsoft has done it as well. They've got entire research departments in Cambridge in the UK, you know, where the technologies aren't necessarily that are developed or the ideas that are developed within those research units aren't necessarily going to come in to the day-to-day technologies. But the thinking is. Even the fact that that thinking is happening within the organization, it might be extremely irritating when you've got to get a product out, but just even to be made aware of that kind of thinking is essential. So it sounds like this is a a great answer to one of the questions that we have for you today, which is, who should we be talking to? (laughs) Both Genevieve Bell specifically, but also the the sociologists and (laughs) ethnographers who work at these companies and who, who look at the ways that humans use technology and that it sounds like there's very much a kind of refusing to fit into boxes thing there, right? In the um, depends or, on which box you're or ch- about. <laughs> mutating to fit into the box, right? There's no junk drawer in an iPhone, right? You've got to everything you save has to be a photo, or it has to be a text message, or it has to fit into very specific document types. There's no glove compartment where you just throw stuff in. And so what happens is people end up, I mean, I'm sure I've seen loads of people do it. I've done it myself, is you take photographs as aid memoirs or, or other kinds of things as the fastest way to either remember something or communicate something with somebody else. And I'm guessing that this is exactly the kind of thing that, well, some of the kinds of things that they research. Yeah. I mean, another great researcher uh, who actually was a collaborator on the Serendipity Engine with me is a woman named Kat Jungnickel. And I love Kat. Kat is just an amazing human being. Uh, She changed my life in countless ways. And it's funny, I've never actually thought about that, but she is probably the one person in my life who has changed things in in lots and lots of ways. I met her when we were both doing our PhDs and she was doing it in sociology and I was doing it in psychology and we both sat in on a on a lecture on a series by a cyber ethnographer 
named Christine Hine, who was also at our university. And Christine is great because she's done all kinds of um, methodological things about cyber ethnography. She was really the first person to define the idea of cyber ethnography. And what that is, is to literally go in and participate and observe and extract from a sociological or an anthropological point of view what people are doing, how they are doing it, and how you as a researcher should examine this. So Christine's also another good person. But Kat has done some really fantastic work. She worked with Genevieve on a project called Home is Where the Hub Is. And it was at Intel. And it was very, I mean, early is relative. It was 2010, I guess, 2008, probably when when she was working on this. But it was a big research project, speaking not with people at Intel, not even necessarily speaking with people who had Intel chips in their computers, but looking rather at how people were fitting the technologies into their homes. So when you have a laptop, what does that mean for the home? What does that mean for the meaning of the kitchen? What does that mean for the meaning of the kitchen between this hour and this hour? What does that mean for the relationships between the people who are either using the technology and not using the technology? What does that do? What are those What are those open questions that you might be able to, if you just add a little tweak in your system, recognize that this is how people are actually using your systems rather than having the audacity to think that you have decided how people are going to use these systems. Because what we've found again and again and a million times again is that people do not use the systems in the way that they were originally intended to be used. (laughs) And so Kat is a wonderful person to talk about those types of things as well. She's great. There's some meme that I think runs the ranks with designers and, and product managers where you've got a picture of a gate that's locked. So everybody just walks around it. And so in the dirt path, the path just goes around the gate. And the whole point is, oh, you're supposed to use the gate and lock the gate. And people just don't want to bother. So they just walk around the gate. Like, they're never going to use it the way you intended. They're going to do what they're going to do. And you can recognize that or not. That's so funny because I used to describe exactly that about gamers and how great gamers were because uh, because gamers are trained basically to come up with (laughs) you find a locked gate. How are you going to get through the gate? Well, you obviously can't go through it, so you're going to figure out, and you're going to have the tenacity <laughs> to figure that out rather than be stopped by the gate. So it's nice. We've, we've reached peak gate, Kim. <laughs> we have achieved it. But yeah, I mean, I wonder, that's, that's a mentality that I think that we have to recognize of the people who are making the technologies, is that, you know, many people, not all, but many people came from a similar background, similar system. And yeah, we just have to we just have to be reflective about that. So in the good old days, I used to have a conversation with a friend of mine, which would always end in like screaming fights. Like there was no middle ground. We would start this conversation thinking this time it'll be better. But no, it was always about it ended up into screaming fights. And it was about the nature of artificial intelligence, which increasingly is obviously a very interesting area to be talking about in the technology world. And it ultimately, the reason these things ended into screaming fights was because uh, we were positing the idea of, will technology create an artificial intelligence in the next 50 years that will pass the Turing test beyond like just here I am, I'm talking to a machine, am I talking to a machine type of thing. And it was interesting because he always took the opinion, he was an engineer, he took the opinion that yes, 
Absolutely. And I took the opinion as a psychologist, I was like, absolutely not. And it came down to the fact that we both had a difference of opinion, which I didn't even realize, in this notion of a, of a divine spark of humanity. That he was like, no, you could break people down into this. And you iterate and you iterate and you iterate and you iterate and you get closer and closer and closer until people just don't realize. And I was like, no, there are things that you cannot recreate because we simply do not know what they are. We don't know what's inside the black box of human beings whether it's belief or whether it's the idea of happiness or whatever it is. We just don't know how to define that. And so I was always pushing against this idea. But in these conversations, we would also, in order to try not to end in screaming fights, we tried different ways (laughs) of like, how can we talk about this in a way that will be productive rather than destructive? And we came up with a panel of people that we would want on our development team of an artificial intelligence. Obviously, you need to have somebody who is, you know, skilled in creating out of the words that we are speaking and putting into the binary system of ones and zeros, the technology. So you need to have somebody to do that. But we also kind of, we were like, you know who we want? We want a magician, right? And we want an actor. And we want a thief. And we want a pathological liar. I think a pathological liar is really, really important (laughs) in having an artificial intelligence. And it was these people that you want to talk to. If you're thinking about scaling, because these are the people who are thinking very differently about how to mess with your technologies and how to break them. They have insights into human capacities that those of us who are not in those categories do. Either they're trying to recreate or they're trying to bamboozle or they're trying to swindle or they're trying to get around. And so they understand different elements of human that perhaps we would not if we're just looking at human straight on and trying to solve for it. That's brilliant. This makes me think of at Launch Darkly, in what we do, we talk a lot about chaos engineering. And it's exactly this, but in a very technical sense. And so this is the human side of chaos engineering. How is that data being used? How is that information being shared? Is it secure? Are people clicking the pathways the way you intend them to do? Are they... I mean, this is like human chaos engineering. It's also about, as you say, your analogy with the gate, in that sometimes we don't even think of which questions to ask. You know, we might look continually at, well, are people clicking the answers to this the right way? Are they clicking on the forms the right way? Without Mm -hmm. saying, what if the question the form is asking is completely wrong? Absolutely. You know, what if you're not actually putting up a form? What if you're gathering the information in a way that is far less direct? You know, thinking in that adversarial way, right? of saying, look, the best way to get the most honest answer is not to ask the question. It's to watch. It's to do things another way that gives you something. Because when people have to think about answering a question, they're already in some ways being dishonest. Mm -hmm. And this is also about how you slice data, right? Because ultimately what you're talking about is you're talking about data points, capturing individual data points from individuals. But there are different ways to do that, right? There are different interfaces. And this is where I come to my interface obsession. Somebody who I love is a composer in the UK named Nick Ryan. And I was very close with Nick uh, several years ago. And he was creating the most fantastic just ideas. He worked on the the audio binaural sound design for the iPhone game Papa Sangre, which was a game that was completely in darkness and that you could only navigate using headphones and just sound. That was the only way you could navigate it with your thumb. And Nick 
also worked with some people. He's done all kinds of crazy things um, where he's created instruments out of the covers of magazines, like, you know, just simply the thickness of the print, right? There are different ways, there are different inputs where you can get information. Um, So, for example, in scientific inquiry, I'm sure many people have heard about the idea of like sonic data, but using it in physics, right? Getting the the sound of Cassini. You know, what is the sound of Cassini coming back? Okay, right, great. Now we can hear that. Because we can hear those data points, we can start to pick up patterns in our oral, A-U-R-A-L, oral sort of input mechanism, which we may not already see you know, through our eyes, right? There are different ways that we interact with one another across the the sensorium, whether that's scent or whether that's sound or whether that's taste or whether that's hearing. And and if you are expert in one thing, you know, then that means that you're able to navigate things in a particular way. And if you're not expert, you know, then you navigate things in another way. But we do that through various things that we don't even recognize that we're that we're attending to. And I think that that's another area of absolutely fascinating opportunity just for insight in terms of the products that you're building. I had a, I had such a great time. I, I gave the keynote at uh, Kai, the Computers and Human Interaction Conference a couple years ago. It's one of the highlights of my speaking experience because I gave, <laughs> apart from the fact that I really liked the talk, I also gave everybody uh, business cards that were um, scratch and sniff business cards. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. And I still have like two and a half thousand of them and they stink. But the idea was, you know, it was basically right. Okay, at this point, everybody has got my business card. This is halfway through the talk. I said, take it out and give it a scratch and have a sniff. And everybody did. 3,000 people in the room go, what's this, right? And then I said, what do you think it is? I didn't give them any input as to what they thought it might be. So what do you think it is? And some people were like, oh, it's caramel. And other people were like, oh, it's mango. And other people were like, oh, it's chocolate. Or other people were like, oh, it's, you know, this thing that my grandmother used to make when I was a child. And I'm not going to tell you what it is Mm -hmm. because that would prime you for what it is that you will smell. But through that experience and through other research that I've done with some scent designers, I discovered that scent is a nostalgia machine. Right? How can you take that knowledge of the fact that scent, which is extremely difficult to create precision on, mm-hmm. right? just like human beings, mm-hmm. how can you take the knowledge that scent brings in all of these different memories and qualities and elements to hook onto a single moment of an individual's past that then allows them to make sense of the data that you are giving to them? the scent that you're giving to them. How can you translate that into a digital technology development process? Not necessarily sticking a scent on your machine, but how can you recognize that nostalgia is something that you need to think about when you are creating a technology? This is about how do you ensure that what it is that you are outputting Mm-hmm. For people to input, right? Because as the receiver of your invention, of your creation, right, you are outputting that in, that creation and I am inputting it into my system. And then, then subsequently effect is that I then output X, Y, and Z. And you hope that X, Y, and Z maps onto your X, Y, and Z. Mm. But when X, Y, and Z, when it turns out to be P, Q, and R that I've outputted and you're like, what? 
no, you know, instead of just like hacking and slashing and, you know, getting rid of this and that and the other because it doesn't work, try and understand why that PQNR happened and what that might mean for how you develop later. And that may help to, to consider unintended consequences. Mm. Yeah. When you say PQR, do you mean, are you talking about the system just output something unexpected or are you talking about... No, no, me, me. What I do with your system, you expect X, Y, and Z. Oh, right. And what I do with your system is PQNR. I don't know if I just used a term of art there. <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> and that's, I think, so one thing I've mentioned is that, that you and I have known each other for many years in different places. For many in, years. In, in the UK new media scene of the late 90s. And then we ended up together at Linden Lab for a short while. That's which right. Was a that's right. That's right. Fabulous that's right. surprise. I was there for a couple of months, but I was there to do the data collection because we went from 3,000 people to 15 million. And I was like, Jesus, Corey, how can I, I, I need to, I need your data. <laughs> How can I do this? Please. Oh, my God. I completely forgot about that. I remember that. I think you told me one of my favorite bits of of computer ethnography that you'd seen in Second Life, which was to do with how people who live in different world nations react to each other in virtual worlds, especially like personal distance, interpersonal distance. So... Mm. People who live in different societies, you see their avatars keeping different kinds of distances. And what we found was like some people from from certain countries seem to have no concept of personal distance and will just go straight (laughs) up to like millimeters away from somebody else to talk to them. At which point the person they are talking to who is from a different society, you know, stands immediately reactively, takes a few steps back and then the other person steps forward and they kind of just move horizontally across the whole landscape, you know, during a conversation. And those, the ways that the physical or the real world intervenes in these totally unexpected ways. Absolutely. That was the reason I went back to university and did my PhD. That was exactly the reason. It wasn't that that dance. It was about real money transfer. It was reading Julian DeBell's Rape in Cyberspace uh, from the Village Voice in 1993. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the fact that at the State of Play conference in 2001, which was uh, like, which was at the New York Law School mm-hmm. with Beth Novak was was one of the conveners of that who ended up sort of, you know, doing a lot of work with the U.S. government on creating the U.S. digital plan. That was all about the fact that you had people doing stuff in a virtual environment. And this doesn't need to be in Second Life, but in a virtual environment, in the online space. There was nothing particularly at that time that was tying them to the offline space. There was nothing, nothing on the internet. You could be a dog. You could be a, you know, as Sherry Turkle described, you could be a swarm of bees. It didn't matter. It did not matter. It was a place of exploration. And yet we insisted on creating judiciary systems and penal systems and and all kinds of other economic systems that were exactly what we knew already. We imported those things. Literally, we picked them up and we plopped them down and we imported them wholeheartedly in their entirety. And we didn't even play around with that. And I was like, what is this about human beings? This is so interesting. That whole nature of how human beings are not different people online. We are extensions of ourselves online as we are offline. But I mean, that's why I'm obsessed with the fact that you have to think about the human being, right? You can't just right. create solutions in a, in a vacuum. You have to recognize that the people that you're dealing with are really messy. We're messy, 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 messy humans. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Unintended Consequences. Our interview with Dr. Alex Krotowski continues in the next episode, where we discuss ethics, accountability, and the standard metric tomato. To help us observe how the unexpected success of a project can adversely affect the environment around it, please give this podcast a five-star rating on iTunes and promote it to every single person you know. You can learn more about LaunchDarkly at launchdarkly.com slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at LaunchDarkly. 